You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. The law feature on Classic Business is brought to you by leading full-service law firm Weber Wenzel. Through an alliance with Linklaters and relationships with law firms across Africa, Weber Wenzel ensures that you have the best expertise wherever you do business. Now, Derville Rowland, he's a Director General of Financial Conduct at the Central Bank of Ireland, told The Independent in Ireland today that the growth in popularity of cryptocurrencies is of great concern. And the comments come after several central bank governors, including Andrew Bailey of the Bank Bank of England and Haruhiko Kuroda of the Bank of Japan have made similar warnings. We have uh, our own Reserve Bank commencing an investigation into the feasibility of its own central bank digital currency and it wants to use it as a legal tender for general retail purposes as a complement to cash. Well, to talk about the Reserve Bank studying retail digital currencies, I'm joined now by Seshri Govinda, Senior Associate at Weber Wenzel. Seshri, welcome to the show. The Saab isn't the only central bank toying with the idea. Um, no, yes. Yeah. So it's currently one of the... I think China has really spearheaded it and is, uh, had made the most progress in it, South Korea as well. Uh, Switzerland, Sweden, there's, there's quite a few countries that have sort of moved in this direction and then the Saab is kind of looking to join that race. And how will it work? And before we talk about some of the dystopian side effects of the central bank being able to digitally trace and monitor what you're spending your money on, is it effectively just going to be a stable coin backed by the existing central fiat? So how do you see this working? So similar to the way in which uh, currently cash works, so you have a note, that is a store of value in the sense that it stores tenrand because the Saab says it stores tenrand. Um, a central bank digital currency is essentially going to be a cryptocurrency that also stores value. So that would store the tenrand because the Saab has issued it and has given it the value of tenrand. So it's very much just um, digital cash or, or cryptocurrency in form of or cash in the form of cryptocurrency right and uh, will it still run along the same principles though, of, of scarcity and being mined if a central bank can just will it into being the same way uh, we do with fiat it will so largely the, the monetary policies around cash and and the minting of cash would follow for cryptocurrency or central bank digital currencies but the monetary policy obviously would be slightly different um, regarding how it would be minted, the value to which it would be minted, and, and how it would circulate. Because the I main see. difference between cash and um, CBDCs is the way in which it would effectively be used as a form of payment and to clear and, and settle payments. Because currently cash moves through the banks, so it moves through the, the banking system um, that's connected to Saab, that's connected to the card network operators like MasterCard and Visa, and that's how our payments are settled. But um, digital currencies operate through um, digital distributed ledger technologies such as blockchain um, that would largely be controlled by um, the Reserve Bank. So it does create questions around what the, the banks or the commercial banks' involvements would be in this world mm. of um, payments that are being used or are being facilitated through cryptocurrency. I mean, it does fly in the face of of the philosophy of decentralizing these things, democratizing them, and taking them out of the the realm of control of central banks. They're borderless in effect, which raises all kinds of regulatory questions. I know SARS is grappling with those, but 
to come back to what the Saab is proposing here, the central bank uh, digital currency or CBDC as you as you as you call it, uh, we already have the project Coca, um, which is some form of, of of study into the use of retail cryptocurrencies. What is on the table now? What is the Saab proposing? So project Coca was essentially largely for wholesale um, use of CBDCs to facilitate payments. Um, what the FARB is looking at now is more of a general purpose retail use. So it is what the FARB is looking at now with this feasibility study is the use of this in the same way that we use cash. So for low value payments, as opposed to the high value payments, which is what the main sort of focus of, of Project Coca was. So the risks inherent in this and the impact of this is on a much larger scale when we look at it as a general purpose retail-based currency as opposed to the sort of wholesale high-value um, currency that was the base of Project Coca. And when we talk currency, a big underpin of that is is trust. I mean, one has to have trust in the central bank uh, that is standing good behind that currency. But back to what China is doing, we know the Chinese Communist Party is uh, at its heart a very command and control type um, uh, hegemonic force in Chinese society. And there are concerns of this more dystopian, darker side to it. If if you've got uh, the ability to monitor, to track what people are spending via a, a digital currency that's issued by the central bank, many people might have very little trust in something that's issued like that. What do you see as the potential darker sides of a project like this? I think it, it is. largely comes to the question of whether... Well, the, the trust that um, South Africans would have in, in the central bank to be able to monitor these transactions or all of your transactions. But bearing in mind that the purpose of, of monitoring it is, is largely to um, see how the essentially the, the coins or the, the cryptocurrency is moving around for the purposes of clearing and, and settling transactions. But yeah, it would, be, it would be very much dependent upon how South Africans would trust the, the Reserve Bank to handle this information, where this information is going. It's, it's quite a, a mindset shift from what we, what we currently have and, and the role that banks play in it and the trust that we put in um, intermediary institutions such as banks um, versus the kind of trust that we would put in the Reserve Bank and mm. the basis on which we would put in the Reserve Bank. And I think in a country like South Africa where we talk a lot about financial inclusion. How do we ensure that more people are banked, more people have access to credit, access to insurance services and products and how they get vetted? Is this the place for the Saab to be spending its efforts? That's, the, that's actually the really interesting part of it because currently in South Africa, the idea of um, a digital store of value is not a, it's not a foreign thing because we do currently have um, e-money and mobile money and e-wallets and mobile wallets that essentially perform the function of, of moving around electronic stores mm. of value um, based on a mobile payment infrastructure. And when we look at things of how are the unbanked served in South Africa in respect of a, a payments perspective and a banking perspective, it is largely through these e-wallets and, and these mobile wallets. The unfortunate thing is that these services operate in a very sort of underdeveloped regulatory framework that is still predominantly controlled by the banks, despite a lot of these e-money, mobile money service um, providers being non-banks. And that is largely the way in which this operates. So the questions around, um, you know, I mean, the end game of 
central bank digital currencies is arguably a good one. It would be good for South Africa to move into that space um, internationally, etc. But currently, there is the need right now, and, and what is sort of encouraging financial inclusion in a very active way is mobile money, but it doesn't operate in a, in a sufficient regulatory environment. And Where that the- is largely... I think that's such a great point you make, Seshri. We should be focusing on what is working currently. And I use things like e-wallets all the time as a phenomenal bridge between the, in inverted commas, formal and informal economy. And you look at the FNB numbers, the volumes that are flowing through these e-wallets are absolutely staggering. There's massive growth in it. It's allowing a greater level of financial inclusion, the ability to uh, transact with informal service providers. Where could we improve the regulatory environment here to see greater uh, use and uptake of e-wallet type services? So currently the main providers of this service are non-banks. NTN, for example, is a um, is a good example of this. Um, the problem being that currently um, our e-money regulatory regime is actually based on a, on a position paper that came out in 2009. And there's been a lot of uh, technological oh. development since 2009, but there hasn't been any um, development in, in the law. And as a result of this, the banks largely still control um, who issues e-money and how this operates. And what this does is you have these businesses that can't really fully enter into the market of e-money. You have tech developers that really are the only ones that have the resources to move into this market, unable to do so because it's largely the banks ask for very much the gatekeepers. You need to partner with the bank except to enter into the space. And the reason for that is because we don't have a developed regulatory environment. And so to prevent risk and harm to consumers, the banks do need to be the gatekeepers. So to promote, so to sort of encourage further development in money, we do need a stronger regulatory framework that firstly allows these non-banks to um, enter into this market, that allows them to enter into the market in a way that still ensures that consumers are able to operate safely, but also that allows them to enter into this market, um, not necessarily in competition with the banks, but recognizing that they're not doing banking business and therefore don't necessarily need to comply with the you know mm. 200 million capital requirements for example that banks yeah. need to comply with yeah. so it's really around um, around that around encouraging this and, and making sure the banks are no longer the complete gatekeepers mm. that is really the, the fundamental step in making sure something like e-money and mobile money can really sort of develop in South Africa. I mean, that's even where the banks are heading. Uh, you know, Investex got a, a specialist title, head of API and digital banking to open up that ecosystem to fintech players. Yeah. It is now up to the regulator and the Saab really being chief amongst them uh, to uh, to start delivering in, in that sphere and uh, perhaps yeah. less of the uh, the, the exciting and um, really interesting sounding uh, dabbling in digital reserve currencies, but really a bit of PR at the end of the day. The, the real value to your earlier point, Sishri, must be in uh, ensuring we increase the likes of e-wallets and other mobile money services. Uh, Sishri Govinder, Senior Associate at uh, Weber Wenzel with the law feature here on Classic Business as always brought to you by Weber Wenzel. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Anne Williams is standing by with your news up after this break. Knowing that limitations exist and knowing that there are no boundaries to your possibilities, 
Combining knowledge and experience to provide tailored and commercial business solutions. Leveraging key relationships with global firm locators and law firms across Africa. That is the value of experience. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. See the value of experience at WeberWenzel.com.